All right, okay, everybody, it's Hugo Bound Anderson here, and welcome to episode one of Vanishing Gradients. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jeremy Howard, who's a data scientist, researcher, developer, educator, and entrepreneur. Jeremy is a founding researcher at Fast.ai, a research institute dedicated to making deep learning more accessible. Jeremy's also a distinguished research scientist at the University of San Francisco, the chair of WAMRI, and is chief scientist at Platform.ai. Now, I will include the rest of Jeremy's history and his present in the show notes. There's far too much that he's worked on to state now. We'll take the entire episode, but also know that we're going to hit a lot of the points of his career throughout this conversation. So in this conversation, I'm really excited that Jeremy and I are talking about the history of data science, machine learning and AI, where we've come from and where we think we're going, how new techniques can be applied to real world problems, whether it be deep learning to medicine or porting techniques from computer vision to natural language processing. We'll also talk about what's present and what's missing in the machine learning skills revolution, so to speak, what software engineering skills data scientists need to learn, how to cope in a space of such fragmented tooling and paths for emerging out of the shadow of fang. If that's not enough, we'll jump into how spreading data science skills around the globe involves serious investments in education, building software, communities, and research. On top of all of this, we'll also dive into the social challenges that the information age and the AI revolution, so to speak, bring with it. But to get to all of this, you'll definitely need to listen to the first few minutes of us chatting about chocolate biscuits in Australia. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi there, Jeremy, and welcome to the show. G'day, nice to be here, virtually. Great, exactly. Great to be in almost the same time zone as you as well. Yeah, well, lovely to be in Australia, that's for sure. It is. And that actually, that's a good point, because today we're here to talk about the past, present, and perhaps even the future of data science and machine learning, and what some may call AI. Oh, is that all? How long have you got? Exactly. We've got a couple of hours. I actually sent the the invite through for 24 hours, so okay, I don't good. know. You feel free to jump jump off at any point. Also, how to da- make deep learning accessible. Hopefully, some things about the data tooling space. But first, as we're in Australia, there's something else that you and I have have in common is is a love of chocolate biscuits. Of course, I mean we're Australian because we have good chocolate biscuits. So all Australians love chocolate biscuits. That's the point, and I think um you know you and I have lived in lived in the US for quite a while. And it's shocking to me how America has not discovered good chocolate biscuits. I mean, you know, they're such an advanced country in other ways, but not in this most important way. Absolutely. And they have, I think it's because they have the cookie Mm. and they actually, Tim Tams, Arnott's tried to market Tim Tams as cookies for an American market because Americans didn't quite get the concept of, of the biscuit. It is sad to me that we're famous for things such as Vegemite, which I'm a huge fan of Vegemite, but I feel like the Tim Tam and the mint slice should be more well-known. Yeah, and let me pump it up to another level and tell you I just bought a pack of mini wagon wheels, which to those that are not Australian (laughs) is a cookie sandwich with jam and marshmallow in the middle and wrapped in a layer of chocolate. And tell me 
you don't need one of those more than you need an Oreo. Absolutely. And in fact, I think what Americans have done, the, the s'more is somewhat wagon wheel-esque. Correct. But imagine you could just pick up a pack at the supermarket covered in a perfect layer of chocolate at any time without needing a fire or anything. And there you go. And jam. <laughs> Who wouldn't um, want to the, add jam? The jam is so key. And the mini wagon wheel is great, but remember the big ones as, as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. You know, we also do, I don't know what you call them in America, chips, crisps. Are they called crisps mm-hmm. in America? I don't remember. Yep. We do them better as well, you know, like yeah. the, the burger rings and the tubes. And and we do a whole, you know, the whole th- shapes, which are... Aren't it shapes? Aren't it shapes? So barbecue shapes. So imagine little savoury cookies with tomato powder and herbs and salt. And, oh, so good. There's so many you're, reasons you're to be in Australia really, and then really all related to snack food, amongst other things. I do want to move on to discuss data science, but I also want to double down on on biscuits mm-hmm. as well. Do you remember, I thought I may have hallucinated this, do you remember the Arnott's biscuit scare of 1997? No. So this, I, I, looked, I thought maybe I'd made this up, but in 1997, I'm reading this from uh, the internet, and it's on Wikipedia as well. Arnott's Biscuits was subject to an extortion bid by a Queensland extortioner. Oh, that does ring a bell. To poison packets of Arnott's Monte Carlo biscuits yeah, in no, South that's Australia not okay. yeah. and Victoria. The company had to conduct a massive recall. And the reason I remember it is because my grandma, who'd retired, my grandparents had retired to Queensland to um the to the Gold Coast. She couldn't have her afternoon iced Vovos. Dear. And that, I remember how distressing that was for her. Some people may not be familiar with the Monte Carlo. So I guess it's kind of like a two butterscotch cookies surrounding vanilla cream and jam. I do notice we managed to fit jam into more cookies than, than some other so-called developed nations. Absolutely. And I think it is part of our... Um, Probably British heritage, right? Because they hmm. they do the jam re- relatively well. For sure. I mean, it's scones and cream and jam are probably yeah. one of the only great parts of They can't of play cuisine. cricket, but, you know, they can do jam. <laughs> so let's move on to cricket. No, I'm, jo- I'm, I'm joking. We probably should um, get... We've, we've nearly gone for five, five minutes, so I think um, maybe we'll cir- circle back. Something I'm interested in, Jeremy, is a lot of people say, you know, I got into data science before data science w- was even a thing. And some of them are right, some, some of them are wrong. But I know that you've been working in different forms of data science, what we call data science now f- for decades. And I'd love to talk about what you've seen and how you've seen the space evolve. Perhaps before getting there, you could just give us a brief rundown of, of your background. Sure. So, yeah, it's been over 20 years for me. And a big challenge was I was doing a thing that didn't have a name and nearly nobody else did. And I knew I wasn't doing statistics because I wasn't very good at statistics and I couldn't talk statistics with statisticians. But I was certainly doing something involving analyzing data with computers. There was a a brief mention of the idea in my kind of early to mid-20s that maybe there's a thing called industrial mathematics, which was Mm. an attempt at giving a name to this thing. And so, yeah, I, I started doing that in the management consulting world. So in the management consulting world, most people... Well, pretty much everybody has an MBA and um, most people are not familiar with data science approaches to things. So um, so actually one of the things I did at a company called AT Kearney, which is one of the big global consultancies, was I helped build a new global practice in what we called leveraging customer information, which was our attempt at naming <laughs> data science. And yeah, you know, I kind of went around the world teaching people how to create data warehouses and use, you know, pull that data out in summaries and create OLAP cubes and 
do statistical analyses to actually try to capture some value out of all that. And also, you know, a bit of machine learning, a bit of neural nets kind of 20 years ago, although they kind of disappeared and then support vector machines took over, but unfortunately they're nearly useless. So kind of... How were you even doing machine learning and and neural nets back then? The first neural nets I did commercially involved software from a company called HNC, which in Mm -hmm. those days they made a plug-in card for your computer that did neural net calculations for you and it also came with software. So they were, you know, just uh, fully connected nets in those days, but it was a good piece of software, you know, it did all the kinds of stuff you would like to see nowadays or in fact a lot of software doesn't even do still now like showing you kind of the derivatives against your inputs to figure out which inputs are most important and you know stuff like that. And so we were doing this on retail bank data mainly for marketing purposes. Cost a few million dollars. It worked okay. You know, the other Big thing around that time or a little later was single decision trees, so Chade and ID3 and stuff like that, which I never was a fan of. I always felt like neural nets had better fundamentals. And then, yeah, I mean, the the kind of the, the gurus who came along during the 90s were um, uh, Ripley and Bishop, who both wrote really great books that kind of stood the test of time in a lot of ways. And actually, Ripley came out to Australia. I met him at the University of New South Wales and had lunch with him. And we both had a good complaint about how stupid, how we build decision trees are, which was in this kind mm. of greedy way. And so the big st- jump for me in terms of machine learning was uh, 2000, or I think I might have even seen it in 99, which is when the uh, Random Forests paper came out. And as soon as I saw it, I was just like, okay, this solves the problem with decision trees. And that was Bryman, right? That was Bryman, yeah, who also was, um, he was one of the decision tree underlying algorithms, Chade, was he Chade? Something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Bryman's an interesting guy because he was a math professor who I think got a bit, yeah, Berkeley, who got a bit sick, I think, of the academic nature of math and he left and became a consultant for a couple of decades. And then he came back to Berkeley with this kind of newfound you know, interest in practical applications and really worked in kind of machine learning data science and, yeah, just developed these incredibly pragmatic, practical things, a lot of which is still largely undiscovered. A lot of it was kind of hidden behind technical reports because he was in his 70s and he had no need to get citations and stuff, so he was not on the whole publishing in traditional journals. Yeah. You know, thankfully Berkeley have um, maintained his original webpage so you can go back and actually check out all the great work that cool. he did, because it's still still really valuable and underappreciated. Yeah. So already we have we have neural nets and we have random forests, right? Right, right. Which is- yeah, so which are both still great tools. Mm. And, you know, the random forest paper, I was at the time running a company called Optimal Decisions Group, which was all about applying optimization to insurance pricing and uh, very heavily leveraging machine learning because we needed models to predict like what price are you going to buy at and, you know, are you going to claim? And if you do claim, how much is it going to cost? You know, and multi-year simulation built on top of those things. And it's very hard to simulate and optimize machine learning models because optimizers tend to find the edge, the, the kind of the edge cases and take advantage of those. And so it was a tricky problem to solve. And so I actually said to a couple of my staff, I said, look, here's a new paper called Random Forests. I reckon we could have this implemented pretty quickly in C Sharp. And yeah, but within four hours, they had it implemented and we played with it and we're like, wow, this is exceptionally fantastic. Mm. 
fast, accurate, very little feature engineering, you know, exactly what I've been looking for for decades. And just such a simple and in hindsight obvious approach to. It's very elegant, isn't it? Yeah. So what happened then? Is that, did you go into insurance at that point? That was my insurance pricing company. And at the same time, I was also running an email provider called Fastmail. Mm-hmm. And Fastmail didn't need as much machine learning or data science, but it still needed like anti-spam, antivirus stuff. And so particularly on the spam side, I worked pretty hard on, you know, basically simple regression kind of algorithms and and kind of analyzing what signals were most useful on samples to figure out where to kind of invest in capturing data and stuff like that. And Fastmail's anti-spam was always pretty famous. You know, people really liked it. It worked very well. And so this was on, among other things, natural language data? Yeah, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the, the main kind of natural language data, if you like, signal for anti-spam was something called uh, Vipple's Razor. And I actually was became friends with the inventor of that when I came to San Francisco through an entire coincidence, complete coincidence. But that was something that basically calculated a kind of a, a hash of the the words in the text, but a hash designed that text with similar words will have similar hashes. And so then there's kind of a global database. There was another one called DCC, did the same thing, a kind of global database of hashes. And so then every email that came in, we'd calculate that that hash and compare it against the database. And if it was similar, that, that would be a signal. Um, but most of the signals were, oh, and also Bayes, you know, so simple, naive Bayes on the words. But a lot of the signals were like from the IP addresses or, sub, you know, subnets or headers. You know, most spammers are pretty stupid, so they're not capable of creating proper headers, you know, so stuff like that. So, yeah, so um, we ended up selling both of those companies and then, um, yeah, and the next thing in my life in in terms of vocation was Kaggle, which you know I'd o- always been fascinated by machine learning competitions. I thought the Netflix Prize was really cool, and KDD was the main one I knew about. KDD had a KDD Cup every year for a long time. And so this was the age of probably it was called data mining or something then. Yeah, right? so what KDD stands for Knowledge Discovery. Is it Knowledge Discovery and Databases or something? So Knowledge Discovery yeah, and Data like Mining. Yeah, so data mining was kind of like, originally that term was used in a kind of a negative way to suggest you're not actually doing anything careful and thoughtful. But, you know, it was very effective. So people just kind of said, fine, yes, I'm data mining. It's it's all good. So, yeah, yeah. So then Kaggle, yeah, was kind of like, okay, well, let's turn this into a whole kind of industry of competitions. And I, I was particularly interested in the, the data scientist side, I really liked like the idea that this was a way that machine learning practitioners could could prove themselves and their techniques without having to show error-bound proofs or create complex mathematical derivations or whatever. They could just say, well, this this works. Mm-hmm. End of story. And I felt like we'd already be, always been missing that, except, you know, for things like the Netflix prize, which is a great example. Like everybody had been ignoring probabilistic matrix factorization, even though it was a great technique, until it, you know, became an, an early winner of the the first rounds of the Netflix prize. And then suddenly everybody's like, oh, we should do this for, for lots of other things. Yeah. So yeah, so I was a huge fan of the idea of bringing machine learning competitions to the masses and making kind of champions of 
practically effective data scientists. And you got involved in Kaggle by participating mm -hmm. in competitions and then becoming the, the president? Yeah, so originally it was basically one guy, Anthony Goldblum, who kind of started it. and Fellow Australian. Yeah, he was um, from Melbourne. And um, and somebody at an R meetup told me I should check it out because I was told them mm -hmm. like I was interested in learning more about R. And because I'd kind of used S plus for a long time, but I'd, you know, I felt like more of an executive techie, you know, having spent a long time in kind of running companies. So yeah, I felt very, had very low expectations about my own capabilities. And so somebody said, yeah, you should check out this thing called Kaggle. There's some competitions. And I was kind of a bit intimidated, but I thought, yeah, I'll just try to not come last would be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I entered a competition in an area I didn't know much about, which was time series analysis. And I kind of felt like, oh, that's a good way to learn something would be to pick something I don't know much about. And I ended up teaming up with another guy and we ended up winning. And that was pretty surprising to me. And so I went back to the next uh, meetup and people were like, <laughs> I thought you said you were trying to learn R, like thought you were like just starting and how did you win mm -hmm. this thing? And I was like, I'm as surprised as you are. You know, I didn't even end up using R. I ended up using C Sharp because, you know, that's what I know pretty well and I still think it's a great language. And yeah, I kind of took a very pragmatic common sense approach to it and kind of noticed that particularly that the the metric being used to measure it was not kind of a symmetric or kind of fair metric. So I kind of found some ways. I wasn't exactly cheating, but some, found some ways I could kind of take advantage of the metric they were using, even though it might not have been actually better in practice. And so and it turned out this metric was something that the econometrics community was really getting behind. So we ended up writing a paper about this and saying, like, this is actually a pretty stupid metric because <laughs> it doesn't measure what you're thinking it's measuring. You know, and then I entered another competition and I won the second competition I entered. And then at an R meetup, I actually met Anthony, who started Kaggle and um, said, I thought it was really cool what he was doing. And he was like, wow, it's really cool that you're winning all my competitions. <laughs> and he told me there was a machine learning data mining conference on in Sydney like the next week. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll come too then. And so we kind of hung out for a few days and I agreed along with another guy called Nick Gruen to become the first investors in the company. And I also agreed, like I also kind of said, uh, he told me about like how it was set up on AWS or whatever. And he's like, oh, it's using three instances and it's, you know, starting to get a bit slow. And I was like flabbergasted. I was like, Fastmail has a million people checking their email all the time and we have less infrastructure than you are for people who are like submitting one competition entry a day. That's doesn't sound good. Yep. And it's like, well, probably it's not because I don't really know how to code. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so I agreed to take a look and I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. For an economist, I guess it, he, Anthony wrote good good code, but like it was not very efficient or maintainable. So I basically the first thing I did was like I said, look, you don't you don't have any indexes on your tables. That would actually make it a hundred times faster. So and he's like, I don't know how to create an index. So I added indexes to the tables for him. And so at this point, I wasn't allowed to enter competitions anymore because I was I now had access to the database. Yeah. Um, so that was a bit of a bummer. And what year was this? This was whatever you know, whatever whatever year Kaggle started. You know, it was just a few months after, probably three or four months after it started. Yep. So a decade ago or so, at least. Yeah. And so basically, as soon as I did that, the the load on the servers dropped by like a hundred x. 
And Anthony's like, wow, that was like <laughs> magic. I'll get rid of my two unnecessary AWS instances. And so now as an investor, I felt kind of an extra level of, you know, concern as to how things are going. And he told me there was going to be a $1 million prize coming up. And I was like, I don't think this is going to be able to handle it, this PHP, you know, duct taped thing. So I basically agreed to rewrite the whole thing from scratch in C Sharp. And then we hired a guy to help with that. So yeah, I ended up, me and Jeff ended up rewriting the whole thing from scratch and migrating everything from, you know, to Microsoft SQL Server and C Sharp. Which in hindsight was kind of weird because I, yeah, I wasn't being paid. I was just volunteering. I was just helping out because it was fun, you know. Yeah, but eventually, you know, Anthony told me he wanted to expand this thing. He wanted to get VC, you know, and I ended up coming to Silicon Valley and building the financial model and writing the deck and we pitched it all. And I never could never quite thought through like, what does this actually mean? So of course, when we actually raised money and at just to suddenly I kind of realized like, oh, we're, I guess we're partners in this thing now, even though I only had a small share because of this, you know, investment I had made. So yeah, Anthony ended up making me basically an equal partner in the company. And we started a new American company called Kaggle Inc. together and moved to San Francisco. And so awesome. Yeah. And so what is the role of these types of competitions in making data science and machine learning more accessible? Really helps to bring down the barriers, the kind of the gatekeeping barriers. So before Kaggle really pretty much the only way to prove yourself was to like write papers or get credentials, PhD, whatever, you know. And I I'm somebody who finds all that extremely uninteresting. And, you know, I, I don't like anything about the academic system. I think it's far too exclusive and I don't feel like it's particularly pragmatic or practical. And I, I don't like how peer review works. And I don't like the way things, it's, there's so much incrementalism and it really doesn't really kind of highlight bold approaches. So like that wouldn't ever have worked for me, for example. And so for me, it helped make things more accessible because people started seeing me as somebody who was good in practice at creating machine learning models, even though I had none of those things. You know, I have a, a philosophy major, Bachelor of Arts, you know, no, you know, I'd never published a paper. And there was a lot of other people like me who who did well in competitions and, and ended up getting hired by companies and becoming, you know, superstars in the field. It was also great for kind of highlighting techniques that actually work, you know, like random forests. So when I started, random forests were not at all popular and I worked really hard to make them popular. And one of the things I did was I said, look, this competition winning approach is based on a random forest and here's how I did it. And random forest got a lot more popular as a result of, of Kaggle and, you know, maybe partly the advocacy of people like me. And so then, you know, since, since then they uh, added notebooks, which have a similar benefit, you know, it makes it easier for people to, to highlight not just their ability to train models that are predictive, but to communicate difficult technical concepts to an audience and it's judged by your peers, people vote for them. Yeah, the notebooks and, and, and the kernels, I think, were big. That's what I mean, change. I mean, I think that's what yeah. they call kernels now, they call yep, them okay. notebooks, so yeah. Yep. What are the concerns with the at-scale adoption of these leaderboard competitions? And so let me kind of lead the witness in a, in a certain direction. We both know that machine learning and inferential models in general, there are lots of things you need to do. And you can break it down maybe into building, testing, 
deploying, maintaining. And leaderboard style competitions don't necessarily cover all of these, right? No, of course not. I don't know why anybody would expect them to or think that it's a problem that they don't or whatever, you know. So I think, let me be clear, I don't necessarily think it's a problem that they don't, but I think there may be a challenge that in the space, leaderboard-style competitions have gotten so much attention that it's we've had challenges in building good education around the other aspects of inferential models being incorporated into business. I don't know. I mean, to me, we've got problems all over the place, you know, and like on, on the on the... <laughs> Inferential side, I feel like on the inferential side, I feel like ML ops is a disaster. It has far too much kind of focus on ML ops tooling and all these startups getting an ML ops money and you know, and it, we don't actually have something equivalent for for ML ops, something which is like, well, what actually practically works instead being mm-hmm. like what's what you know, we get these kind of inf- overly complicated things full of buzzwords, you know. So no, I don't think I agree with that premise. I think like we finally found a way to actually get some appreciation for model building methods that actually work in practice. And that's a good thing. And gee, it would be nice to have that, you know, something like that in other parts of the pipeline as well. You know, so the issue is that we we don't really have a mature ecosystem for labeling or for data validation or for model maintenance or so on and so forth. So it would be mm. great if we can find ways to do all of these things in more pragmatic ways. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think some of these things are things that you're actively spending a lot of time thinking about and working on with um, Fast.ai. And so I wonder whether go, we could then continue the story of, of your journey from Kaggle to, to the types of things you work on and think about now. Yeah, sure. So the next thing on my journey was Analytic, which was the first company to focus on deep learning and medicine. And that basically came from my, um, my excitement at seeing, after 20 years, neural networks, which I'd always thought were going to be the eventual right path forward, finally becoming practically useful and actually achieving superhuman performance on very human tasks. You know, the first one was um, traffic sign recognition. And so when I saw, you know, when I saw that happen, that was 2012, that was when I thought, okay, I've got, I've got to make this my full-time job now. So, okay, so to answer your question, Kaggle was definitely earlier than 2012 because that was when I was looking right. to leave. And when was it, was the diabetic retinopathy competition around that time? Yeah, yeah. So diabetic retinopathy was probably a year or two later. So we had the cats and dogs competition on Kaggle. Mm-hmm. That was the first time that Kaggle had a you know, image recognition competition. And that brought the state of the art for recognizing dogs versus cats from a 20% error to a half a percent error, you know, which showed the huge gap between academia and practice. Mm. And then, yeah, diabetic retinopathy was... Ben Graham, who was unheralded but quietly brilliant academic, smashed it, absolutely smashed it. And he had developed his own, all his own techniques on sparse training and his own libraries in CUDA from scratch, like just an absolute genius and also a bit extremely practical. And that really showed the kind of opportunities, I think, for medical imaging. And so I went to the Medical Image Computing Conference, Mikai, I guess that was 2014, maybe 2013, as part of my research around like 
aware a neural network is going to be really useful first in practice. And I was just shocked to find that, that in a whole conference focused on medical image computing, there were no papers being presented that used neural networks. It was all, you know, graph cut and, you know, whatever, like traditional techniques. And I just thought, wow, this is a huge opportunity, you know, to, because like all the approaches I saw, I, I knew that neural nets would be far faster and far more accurate and far more interpretable. And you put this down to like siloed knowledge and yeah, lack of absolutely. And also like Because we saw something networks. again recently with like neural nets, like computer vision and natural language processing, right? That oh yeah. There were I mean, people, generally speaking, people hate neural nets, you know, particularly the older generation. So like, for example, I found, you know, since I've come back to Australia, I've tried to do quite a few academic conferences to kind of help get the word out and, you know, help us help the Australian community. And, and literally in every one that I give a talk, there are multiple older men who will get up and just rant about neural nets mm. and in ways that are like totally ignorant. Like they've obviously never trained a neural net in their life and have no idea how they work. But there's a huge amount of negativity towards neural nets. So you'd gone to Mikai that year and presented something about neural nets you would have been totally shut down because people hate them. They just had such a terrible, I mean, they still do in many ways have such a terrible reputation. And so it's partly siloed knowledge and partly yeah, a huge amount of kind of baggage. Inertia, resistance, and but this is great, right? Because a lot of the, at least historically, for ad adoption can take decades yeah. a lot of the time. But something we've seen here in diagnostic imaging using neural nets is, you know, from 2014 to like, five years later or whatever, a really quick turnaround in massive adoption. So I ended up doing a talk at RSNA, which is the big radiology conference. It's something like over 100,000 attendees, I think. And mm -hmm. I gave the first talk about deep learning for radiology. And they put me in the farthest corner room on the very last session after most people had gone home. Um, but even that, we still got a full house, basically pretty much full house talked about the importance of what I thought deep learning for radiology. And so I, this was um, organized by a guy called Paul Chang, who's a, a brilliant both radiologist and pathologist ac academic. Uh, very, um, you know, got a lot of foresight. And literally by the next year, RSNA, the show floor was full of people hawking AI products. There was a whole AI stream. There were queues out the door for every AI talk. So yeah, it took it took a year mm. to go from zero to huge. And uh, RSNA, RSNA created their own journal on radiology, artificial intelligence. And it was a very rapid adoption, which is exactly what I wanted. That was why I went into this field was because I wanted to see as many people as possible getting into it and making it Huge. Yeah, great. And then only a year or two or a few years for these things to actually to be deployed around the world and reported on by the New York Times and all of these types of things, right? Yeah, that bit's taking longer, you know, because of regulatory issues mainly. It's happening a lot in China. It's very widely deployed in radiology in particular. I didn't get into pathology and the reason for that was pathology doesn't even have a digital workflow. So it's all physical microscopes and physical specimens. So there is a company in Australia that's um, basically been developing, in fact, coming out of Queensland, developing digital workflows and AI for pathology. In China, which doesn't have the same 
regulatory and process baggage. You know, they're inventing, you know, they're developing everything from scratch. So mm. they've been much more rapid adopters of of AI in in medical imaging than in the West. So what happened after Enlytic? I was very excited about the opportunities to kind of broad or even universal diagnostic and even kind of creation of an action plan for patients based on deep learning in medicine. But Enlytic found its product market fit in radiology, particularly lung CT, just because that happened to be the first thing we prototyped. And we proto- we made that the first thing we prototyped, mainly because that, that was the thing that there was public domain data available for. And the sad reality for VC-backed startups is it's once you've found some kind of product market fit, it's very difficult to maintain a kind of a big, bold vision and, and rather than just focus on that one thing. So I was not able to do the plan that I wanted to do. And, you know, worse than that, there were so many other things I wanted to do with deep learning. So like I, I kind of narrowed it down to the big early opportunities to being robotics, you know, geospatial satellite and medical and so I decided to start with medical because I thought that was the area with the biggest opportunity for societal impact, you know, in the shortest amount of time. Yeah, but there are all these other things that I wanted to do. And then I also realized there were lots of other things that people could make a great societal impact from using deep learning, which I didn't even know about because I don't know most things. And so I felt like it was a mistake to, for me to just like keep picking a vertical and doing that. I felt like I'd always be kind of underachieving in the way that I felt that I was for Enlytic. So my wife, Rachel, and I decided to, to start a company to, to help other people use deep learning to solve societally important problems. And so that's why we started FastAI. And the other reason we started FastAI is we saw that the people we knew who were proficient with deep learning it was a real monoculture. You know, they were generally young white men from exclusive, highly technical academic backgrounds. Yeah, all lovely people and doing a great job. And I mean, nothing wrong with that. But they weren't, you know, working on the or familiar with the kinds of problems that I would like to have seen them working on, you know, like access to water or access to education or, you know, dealing with injustice or whatever. So we, we kind of felt like um, the way to get a diversity of problems being solved in a diversity of ways was to get a diversity of people. And so we did feel like we needed to, yeah, we needed to create a company to help more people utilize deep learning for their own thing, whatever that thing might be, you know, is as cheap and fast and easy a way as possible. So with fast .ai, you've of course spoken about this before. I'd love to delve into kind of your philosophy and practice behind it, particularly, I suppose, in the four pillars of software, education, research, and, and, and community, and how all these kind of in, interrelate for this project. Yeah, so three of those things are in, in a loop, right? So the way I've been seeing it since we started Fast.ai was that I wanted deep learning to be kind of in a similar place to where the internet is today. So I remember I started using the internet when I was 17 or 18, you know, and I needed a, a Unix shell account and, you know, I needed, you know, to, to interact on forums, I used the RN newsreader, you know, console-based system with, I mean, I thought it was 
brilliant, awesome program, but it did require, you know, fairly arcane commands. You'd have to read, you know, man RN and use email, you, you know, similar thing. And um, yeah, it wasn't something that you could use without a high level of familiarity with with Unix and TCPIP and so forth. You know, and today my mum sends me email and uses Skype and does her accounts on Excel and sends it to her accountant and whatever. And so that's that's where I wanted to get to. And so that that is mainly about software and understanding through years of research and development on like what is the internet useful for, who is it useful for, how do we make those things available to those people in a way that fits them. So we kind of felt like research and software would be the key. But you know, where do you start, right? Like what were really the constraints? in, what was that, like 2013, 2014? No, 2015. Anyway, I get confused about years, pardon me. Whenever the hell it was we started Fast.ai. You know, what was stopping everybody from using deep learning, really? And we figured to to know that we needed to start by understanding, well, what are the best practices right now? You know, and what would it look like if we tried to teach people those best practices? So that's why we started with education. So we started out by saying, okay, well, let's try to really understand what are the best practices for training neural nets right now and what are they actually practical for right now and teach people those things. So that became the first fast.ai practical deep learning course. And so we decided to focus on coders because it, you couldn't do it without code, but we did have a feeling you could perhaps do it without a huge amount of math. So this was like super speculative because at that time... But it's also key to mention that you're... You're not a mathematician. Your background isn't in maths um, in, in the way that Rachel's is, right? Right, right. So Rachel's a math PhD and she knows all that Greek letter stuff much better than I do and proofs and whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've am i discovered that I'm actually quite a capable mathematician in a certain way, but I never had that, uh, you know, university training. Yeah, so, yeah, so as I was saying, it's a very speculative idea because at that time, basically, yeah, everybody doing deep learning were... were were PhDs in math or computer science, or sometimes even both. And things were explained using math. The one person who was who was starting to show a different direction was Andre Kapathy, who was developing this uh, CNN course at Stanford, mm-hmm. which we thought was very exciting direction. But yeah, we you know, we kind of had this speculative but unproven idea that maybe people could become proficient at using neural networks in a really practical way without needing a PhD. We didn't know it was true, but we had a feeling it might be. And so that was the kind of goal of this first course was to figure out the best practices and teach them to people who were competent coders, but when, you know, possibly quite rusty at math. Are you teaching in Python at this point? Yeah. So we started with Theano, Mm -hmm. which was definitely the, the best option at the time which did require Python. You know, and we very much focused on computer vision because that's really all that neural nets were kind of the state of the art approach for. And so then to answer your question about like the community, so then we kind of thought like, okay, well, we need a way for the people doing this course to to share their work and to talk to each other and ask questions and to talk to us, you know, and we should make that something which lasts beyond the course. You know, we wanted the idea that people you know, who had been part of this 
exciting journey would remain part of the journey ongoing. So, and at that time, the um, the Discord software for for forums was pretty new. But I've always been a big fan of forums, and before that, of Usenet. And I thought, like, oh, this this is the way to do it. I think so. I, I tried setting up a Discord server, and yeah, so we we had started a community through these forums, and people started sharing the work that they were building, and we were just like, wow, this is amazing. People were actually building really cool stuff. And a lot of these people were, you know, from places I'd barely heard of, you know. So like one guy posted like, oh, I'm 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 on I'm in the Ivory Coast, you know, we barely have an internet connection here. So I have to like spend 48 hours downloading each video and then I watch it. And does anybody have tips for, you know, I all I've got is a, you know, six-year-old laptop, anybody got tips on how to run the notebooks? And, you know, we're like, wow, okay, we're really, you know, finding, you know, interesting people in interesting places are finding us. And then we started hearing of people building like, you know, malaria diagnostic systems or whatever. And, you know, you know, because their own family had been devastated by malaria. And, and we thought, yeah, this is, this is happening. People are actually using deep learning to solve problems that we don't understand using data sources we're not familiar with. It was very exciting. Fantastic. And then on top of that, you started to, you realized that you needed to write your own software? At that time, not too much. Basically, it started out with the classic utils.py. You know, there were certain little bits of boilerplate in Theano or around the kind of data processing that I kind of thought like, oh, no need for people to type that out in full every time. I'll just wrap it up in a function. So I think, you know, that first course I probably included in the in the repo of notebooks, you know, utils.py and mm-hmm. said like, uh, you know, and just used it in the notebooks and said like, okay, well, you have to import this and that way you can only have to type this one line rather than these six lines. And, you know, one of the things I was really pleased uh, of doing was really focusing on notebooks from the start so that people would be actually running interactive experiments and actually tangibly working with the models. And, you know, I thought a lot about like, well, where do we, you know, we're going to use like Coursera or HeadX or Udacity or whatever. And, you know, Rachel and I thought, no, we, we you know, if we put our, our future in the hands of some external entity like that, God knows what will happen to it. You know, VCs will probably end up monetizing these things in ways that hurt students and authors. And of course, that is what ended up happening with stuff like Coursera. So we thought, okay, we'll just chuck them on YouTube, but we'll create our own interface around it. And so that all worked really well. And yeah, I mean, there wasn't really any choice other than Python. You know, at that time, Julia, I don't, I think it existed, but I don't think it had any deep learning stuff yet. You know, whereas Python obviously had the the ecosystem and Theano was really quite a nice piece of software. One of the big challenges though was everybody had to set up their own deep learning server. So, you know, I had a video explaining how to set up AWS and I created uh, an AMI and copied it into each of the main regions and said, like, you can just use this AMI. But there was still a huge barrier to entry there, which is like Linux system administration. And that's at least relatively solved now with, I mean, in, in the course now you use or encourage people to use services like Paperspace or Colab. Yeah, Paperspace and Colab have solved that. Mm. And now the new 
Kid on the Block, the horribly named Sage Maker Studio Lab, mm-hmm. which is a similar thing to Paper Space yep. and Colab, but much more of a kind of classic Jupyter Lab environment, which I much prefer to the Colab version of it. Paper Space has never been as um, reliable as I'd like. It's mm. always been better in theory than in practice. But yeah, some people seem to be able to use it successfully. I've never had a lot of luck. But yeah, it's great. You know, on on our course now, you just click a link and it opens it up in Colab and you start. There's nothing to there's with nothing GPUs, to which with is, GPUs, which is GPUs, exactly. Right? It's just it's such a great service. Uh, something we've mentioned it a few times that it may be worth drilling into is the importance of um, notebooks and literate programming. And perhaps you could even give us a bit of historical perspective, perhaps dating back to Maybe math, Mathematica? Mathematica, the, for sure, yeah. So first notebooks? Yeah. Yeah, so I always had this love-hate experience with Mathematica. I, I felt like whatever I used it, that I was using the thing that everybody should be using all the time for everything, you know, both in terms of the kind of the Lisp-like language, which was just so much more elegant than any other language that I had, I had used, so much more expressive, such a good library and the yeah and the notebook environment being able to explain what I was doing as I went both to myself you know and to future me and to my clients or customers or whatever this is super important for science right because I used to work you may recall I used to work in in cell biology and biophysics and my biologist colleagues would have their Journal. their books yeah, yeah their journals exactly no, where they post like photos and all their PCR results and absolutely I remember when I was learning science that the journal is like every scientist, they would study their journal methods to learn, mm. like, you know, and it's all about being totally rigorous in documenting every step. And, you know, like the story of how the Nobel gases were discovered, you know, was really thanks to that that care of documenting each step. And it's like, oh, there's a little bit of something left over. And then, you know, the, you figure out like, oh, well, we've done all the right steps. So it's actually a real thing. We should study it. Yeah, it's. I find it weird that so many people are so against notebooks when you know other sciences are so aware that documenting the development and experimental process is almost like it is probably the most critical part of science. Yes, I, I think one of the challenges is firstly that too many of these conversations occur on social media, and there's some form of like schismogenic polarization that that happens there. The other thing, though, is I think it solves that part of what we do. And this is something, of course, we all think about a lot, but, you know, the deployment story and incorporating software engineering best practices into this, and it, it doesn't necessarily solve all of those without the existence of other tools. So I wonder whether you can tell us a bit about... Yeah, I think also NVDF. another big problem is that a lot of people... If you're having trouble with your code as a data scientist or, you know, nowadays increasingly you're some other kind of domain expert who happens to have to do data science, mm. the person you ask for help is a software engineer. Yep. Jupyter Notebooks don't quite solve the problems that classic software engineering has. You know, like it's not necessarily what you're going to want to use to kind of create a CRUD app or mm. scale up a chatbot to 50 million users or whatever. And so, but it looks like it's solving the same problem because it's something that people write code in. And so software engineers then will kind of look at, you know, what their chemists are doing or their astrophysicists are doing or whatever in their department and be like, 
dude, this is not how you write code here. Let me show mm. you Emacs or VS Code or whatever, and I'll teach you how to write code properly. So I think it's partly a confusion. It's misinterpreting the goal. Yeah, people people don't understand that code is used in different ways for, for different things. There is this fact that after some period of research and development, you end up with something you do actually want to build. You know, you're like, oh, this this is actually working. And some people kind of, or a lot of people seem to think that if you can't take the experimental notebooks you use to develop that and productionize them somehow, then the entire process was stupid. You know, it's kind of like, oh, if a Kaggle competition can't be directly turned in production, then the competition was a waste of time. You know, neither of these things are designed for that purpose. So like the, the fact that you then go through a period of like developing a solution that may well require breaking out Emacs or VS Code or whatever is not does not mean that the original R&D process was, was stupid. And so notebooks were developed by a, a scientist, you know, Fernando Perez at Berkeley mm-hmm. for the purpose of helping with science. And that's the customer base, you know, that's the that's that's the user segment that's being targeted. And indeed for for teaching and experimenting with deep learning. Yeah. It's great. So that so that never developed, you know, the the usual software engineering stuff, building modules and, you know, releasing libraries and running unit tests and refactoring and all that stuff, you know. And so, you know, but for me, I still felt like that experimental exploratory environment is where I want to do all my work, you know. So for me, I felt like, okay, well, let's add the unit testing and the continuous integration and the module building and stuff into it rather than you know, have two tools for two separate things. Because, you know, anytime I had to switch over, I, I'm, I'm a huge Vim user and I love Vim. I used to, you know, run Vim tutorials and I've been using it for 20 plus years, you know, but I would would much rather be in Jupyter Notebooks. I don't like having to switch over to Vim or, or VS Code or, or Emacs, all of which I'm very familiar with. So, yeah, I decided I wanted to, to add all of that other software engineering stuff to Notebooks. That's where NB Dev came from. And maybe you can say a bit more about NB Dev for those people who haven't heard of it. Yeah, so NB Dev is a framework for allowing you to create high quality software artifacts from notebooks. And so yeah, I find it a real delight to use notebooks for this purpose. So I do. Mm-hmm. So all of my libraries are built in notebooks, including even my servers, even my GUI tools. I get all that nice ability to communicate with future me and also my customers and my co-developers in you know in a very rich way with animations and plots and pictures and you know hierarchies of headings and all that and I get to explore in that environment and I keep the whole process of that exploration so as I'm learning a new API you can I'm documenting that as I go and but those notebooks create Python libraries, you know, and the Python libraries, uh, because we now kind of have this NB dev step, the Python libraries can end up being a much higher quality than your average Python library because they do all the things that normally we can't be bothered doing. So, for example, you should always have a, a dunder all defined in your modules such that if people import star, they only import the stuff that you actually want to be exporting. But who can be bothered doing that? Or well, NB dev does that for you. You should have you know, your entire kind of introductory spiel in your readme, 
and on your documentation homepage and in your Conda description and in your PyPy description. But who can be bothered doing that? Well, if you use MB Dev, all that automatically happens for you. You know, you should have like lots of code examples, including the outputs littered throughout your documentation. Again, who can be bothered doing that? Well, with MB Dev, it's all done for you. So you you. So for me, I, I get to enjoy working in an environment in which I'm extremely productive and I find really enjoyable. Like when I say extremely productive, three, four, five times more productive, like really so much more productive. And I can do it for longer because I'm having such a good time. And I end up with these really high quality libraries. That, uh, so all of your cells become tests, you know, so as you as you go, you can you know, and the tests are in the same place as the implementation, so you don't have to. Ex- people don't have to jump backwards and forwards. It's all automatically run through continuous integration on GitHub Actions. The documentation's all built directly from the notebooks. It's all fully hyperlinked. You know, in your Markdown, anytime you have backticks to kind of say here's a code element, if it's a if it's a name of a symbol in your library, it automatically links to it. Yeah, it just makes everything easy. You know, and yeah. so you can focus on. Writing code. Yeah. So what I'm hearing, you focus on writing code in the place you want to write code, and it does all the stuff that you kind of don't enjoy doing. Yeah. And you end up with better PRs as well because, like, you don't end up with a PR where somebody doesn't change the docs or doesn't add the tests because they're writing in a notebook where all around the thing they're writing is docs and tests, you know, and in this kind of in the same way, you don't have to learn a new like. PyTest framework or Sphinx documentation. It's just notebooks, you know, and so PRs generally come with good docs and good tests. And, and of course they work because the CI is run when they when they push them. Great. And we'll definitely include a link to NBDev in the show notes. I'm wondering for any data scientists who maybe have a bunch of back their background is in in science, what type of what are a couple of software engineering best practices that you, you'd encourage them to become more comfortable with? You know, I think tests are really important. You know, anytime you you run a cell in a notebook and it outputs something and you check that output is what you're expecting, you know, I would then copy and paste that output into the same cell and turn that into a test to check that they're equal. And so then from now on, anytime you change your code, that thing you wanted to make sure it was what you expected is still that thing that you expected. And so notebooks make it very easy to create tests like that. You know, I think also really getting to the habit of of using that restart and run from top button in a notebook is, you know, to really make sure that you you can always run your notebook from the top. With with NB Dev, it enforces that. So like when you run the test, they always run in that way. So that's a very good place to be. You don't want to be in a place where, you know, you need 10 pages of instructions saying run this cell and then copy this over there and then run that cell and stuff, kind of like a lot of Excel spreadsheets um, in practice seem to kind of end up like that. I was trying to think, I mean, you know, software engineering is such an interesting thing, you know. I would say like really focus on decreasing complexity, you know. So I most of my functions are going to be about five lines long, long enough to do something interesting, but short enough that you can look at it and understand what it's doing Pretty quickly, yeah. I generally speaking, if you know, if there's a function that's much more than ten or so lines long, at least for the actual meat of what it's doing, I'd be considering breaking it up into smaller pieces. And so I end up finding I hardly have any comments in my code. 
because mm. I carefully name my variables and I carefully name my functions and things that are kind of like, oh, this block's doing this thing. Well, I generally factor it out into a separate function and now you can see exactly what the inputs and outputs for that block are and it's got a name. And so I end up finding that I only really need comments in places where it's like, oh, this is working around a bug in this external API or did you know, something like that to kind of tell the reader something that they really need to know. I'd like to drill down a bit more into the fast AI package and library and ecosystem that, that you've developed. In particular, why did you start turning this into something something bigger than like a utils.py? And perhaps you can speak a bit about the rationale behind having a layered API. Yeah, well. so this was always the thing that we kind of planned to focus on. As I said, from the start, you know, we felt like we need what we needed to write was software. Uh, it would be software that would allow deep learning to become truly accessible. So that first course, you know, was step one in us figuring out what that software would need to do. You know, and it allowed us to create a, a loop that we run each year, although we didn't run it last year mainly because of COVID, where we look at like what were we able to teach in that course. And what weren't we able to teach in that course? And what things were, were too difficult? What things took too long, too much compute, too much data? And how do we make those things simpler, faster, lighter weight? So that means after the course, the first thing we have to do is research. You know, if this thing took too much data, how do we make it so it needs less? This thing took too much compute, how do we make it so it needs less? You know, this thing required combining four different libraries, each one of which is complicated, you know, in weird ways, to, too much to get your head around. This one required explaining all this, you know, complex mathematical machinery. And so then, you know, um, that research then, or, or often it would just be like, okay, we didn't quite get a state-of-the-art result for this, why not? Or this is a state-of-the-art result, but it seems less good than it feels like it should be. How do we improve the state-of-the-art? Yeah, so the result of all that research then, it we put into a software library that basically kind of packages it all up so that you get world-class results with as little work as possible. So basically the idea is you should only tell the computer what it can't figure out for itself. That's the basic idea. And when you use that library in that way, you should get basically state-of-the-art results. You know, it shouldn't surprise you with giving you rubbish without you knowing it's rubbish and why it's rubbish. So yeah, so that's that's why we, after the first course, we started creating the library, um, which is called FastAI. Now the problem is that if you focus only on that kind of top level API experience of like make sure it's it's fast and easy to do the main things we can think of that you might want to do. What then happens when you using that library find it's not quite as fast as you need it to be, or the file formats it's using isn't quite what you have, or you want to use it in a slightly different domain, you know, maybe it's designed for vision, but you want to use audio, you know, you need to change things. And so that means that we need to make sure when you need to dig it down that extra layer, that the next layer is just as easy to use as the top layer. So that's where the layered API comes in, right? When you dig underneath that first level of code to see, well, how was that made and how do I change it? You should be looking at something which is just as you know, friendly and helpful and gives you best-in-class results you know, by default. And so everything we write that top layer in 
is the the mid tier API. Like so, we're using an API that we really enjoy using. You know, and so then the same thing. Like, okay, you're using that mid tier API to kind of customize something, but then you want to like use a totally different set of graphics primitives, or you want to you know target some different hardware or whatever. How do you do that? So you know, we then create the the bottom tier API. We've written our own computer vision library, our own NLP tokenization, et cetera, system. And again, so you know, each of you know you can go in and change any of that. And so because each layer lives on top of each other layer, you can change anything at any layer and then all the other pieces will continue to work, you know, as long as you continue to follow that that API that we've provided. So it means that power users can, you know, do their PhDs within this thing, like create totally different approaches to, to any part of the system they like. But it also means that total beginners can do lesson one of the fast.ai course, you know, in five lines of code. And they can just change that one line of code to bring in their new data set or whatever. So yeah, layered APIs, totally normal, almost universal, you know, out in the software engineering world. But before fast.ai came along, they didn't really exist in in deep learning. I feel like the closest thing maybe is like, and it's too different. Packages, right? So Keras and TensorFlow, or something like that, I suppose. Right, which, which exactly, which is a very different thing, because like TensorFlow was not created with a view of supporting Keras. Do you know what I mean? And also, Keras was has a single layer of API. So with Keras, like this, so we in year two used Keras and TensorFlow, which you know had had just come out, and that was great. You know, but particularly for part two of our course, which is mainly about implementing research papers, there was just so much stuff that we couldn't do in Keras. And then I looked at the source code to Keras to see like, well, how do I customize how this works? And it was just all coupled up together in these complex ways. I couldn't I couldn't do it. So I just like, and that was a real shame because then I'd have to tear out that piece of Keras. But then it meant I had to tear out all of Keras because I just found you couldn't, it didn't decompose, you know. So when PyTorch came along, that was when we realized, you know, fast AI had to become a much more complete self-sufficient thing because PyTorch was like such a big jump over TensorFlow in terms of accessibility and in terms of kind of a match with how developers like to develop and how data scientists like to experiment. But they didn't have anything like Keras, you know. So, so before that, you know, we were more like, Fast AI was a, still a pretty thin thing, which kind of added a few pieces to Keras, and you know tr- tried to find ways to make Keras more flexible. But yeah, like I say, when it when it and, and PyTorch came out just a bit before our part two course was due to come out, and between realizing like okay, I can't write what I want to write for NLP in Keras, uh, I can't make it work, and then I tried to do it in PyTorch, and it was so much easier and so much faster. And then, okay, so we were kind of, we ended up using PyTorch for that part two course, but it, I knew it would be totally unsuitable for part one. You know, you can't, I really didn't feel like you could start with like, okay, here's you training your first model where you have to create data sets and a data loader and then write a loop for the epochs and then write a loop for the batches and then calculate the gradients and then zero them. And I was like, oh my God, no way. So yeah, so that's when we kind of decided, okay, well, fast AI is going to have to become a, 
a total package, which, yeah, and kind of inspired by Keras in some ways, but also with a very different approach to building with this layered API. And I was very lucky that at that time, Sylvain Gujar became available and he was able to work on that with me full time. So, so Sylvain and I, you know, I now basically had a whole extra person to work with. And so the two of us built this package and we decided to build the whole thing in notebooks. And uh, yeah, it worked worked really well. We were really happy with how it came out and how how much people liked it. And you've also written and published a book together. In notebooks, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so we've got an O'Reilly book, Practical Deep Learning. And we started writing that. So actually, so Sylvain started working on the first chapters, not in notebooks. And, you know, I kind of then said to him, you know, why don't you try restarting that? But like... But with notebooks and like, but let and let's pretend there was some way of turning it into a book. Within two days, it was like, oh my god, Jeremy, I love this. You know, I was hating writing this book before, and now I'm loving writing this book. And so we decided to create this thing called FastDoc, which is something that turns notebooks into into a book. And so that really did make writing the book a lot more enjoyable, and it allowed us to write it in this very free-flowing way where it's like a conversation. It's like, look at this line of code. If we run it, this is what happens. You can see this picture appears, you know, but if we did it this other way, here's what happens. Or we get this other picture. And, you know, we don't have any worries about people emailing O'Reilly Zerata group and saying like, oh, this code doesn't actually run or it doesn't actually match up to this output. Of course it does because it's actually the code. Because that's how it was developed. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that ended up really good. And people are really, really loving the book, you know, people, you know, like I sent it to a lot of people I admired and a lot of them actually read the damn thing and sent me back messages saying that they really, really enjoyed it and got five stars on Amazon, which is good. That's awesome. And the book is all freely available online. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. But if you like it, I'd encourage you to buy it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, reading Jupiter Notebooks is a bit of a different experience to reading a physical book. And so even people who have read the notebooks, have told me they do like having the book. But don't feel, yeah, don't feel compelled. If if the notebooks work for you, then just do that. Totally. I'd also like to mention the kind of the top layer of of the fast AI's um the top layer of the the API is is really nice because it's very use case specific. I mean you've really passed it out into vision text tabular and collaborative right. filtering. Those applications, yeah. Yeah. Which is very intuitive. And it also, I mean, all of them use and you kind of hinted at this before talking about loading data sets and all of this and all of that, which eventually turned, I think, probably into your into your data block API to make that incredibly Yeah. Cool. And so for the each of those four applications, you basically use exactly the same code. You know, so you only really have to learn one API. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the data block API in particular was something I was pretty proud of. And it came out of me driving myself crazy by creating like all these different like image regression class and image classification class and black and white image regression class. And this is insane. I had thousands and thousands of lines of bloody data processing code and I stopped typing, stopped coding and actually stepped back and tried to think for a bit. You know, it took me a few months to realize I should do that. Mm. And I was like, well, what do I actually do? You know, what do we, you know, when I do this data processing and I thought, well, there's some kind of source of data which I define and then there's some way I find the labels and then there's some way I split it into kind of test validation training sets and there's some way I 
process the data to create the labels and to create the features. There's some way I turn it into batches. You know, there's a pretty very specific number of steps. And so I split them out. And so now suddenly I just needed one class for each thing. And I realized looking back at my old code that I had this Cartesian product of every combination of those things that I'd ever used. And now I just, yeah, just had one thing of like, oh, here's like the one line of code to create labels if you can get them from the folder name, for example. Or here's the one line of code to create labels if you can get them from a regular expression from the file name or whatever. And it was also nice that... um, we can then document that API and say to people, well, you can create your own, you know, labeling function or data splitter function or whatever. And actually, one of the things that made it a lot simpler was when we tried to port it to Swift. And Swift is much more functional, you know. And as we went through that process, we kind of realized that I had been using this Fluent API, which I've always possibly had an over tendency to use fluent APIs, which I like in the JavaScript world and even kind of the VBA world. But then when we kind of redid it in a functional way, we got some help from Chris Latner and some of his team and and uh, Alexis Gallagher, and we kind of realized, oh, you know, this actual functional way ends up looking better in Python as well. So a lot of fast AI actually switched to a much more functional approach after that Swift port, which definitely made it, definitely made it better. Cool. And and Chris even appeared in some of the course, right? Or- Chris did appear in some of the course. Yeah. I mean, sadly, it didn't end up going anywhere because he left Google, and so Google had to close down the the Swift project. But it was really, yeah, it was really sweet working with him and his team because they're um, very cool people doing cool work and I, I learned a lot and it definitely helped our Python library. When you were talking about the development of, I mean, the, the suffering involved in loading data, data sets and splitting and all of the, these things, what, what really, one way of framing this is you're kind of on a journey to find the best abstraction layer for the API, right? That's exactly right. This, right. And this is one of the, the major challenges of developing any any software and something I don't I think in the deployment story is part of this huge challenge here. We don't even no. have the right abstraction layers yet. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I've spent a lot more time in my life writing code than doing models, I guess. Like that's spent much more of my time reading books about software engineering and API design than I have about reading math books. You know, so that's like that's my thing. And I think that's unusual. You know, there's not that many People who spent most of their time focused on software engineering, who were who are actually building deep learning libraries, and so yeah, we don't have enough people really thinking about the the developer experience. You know, like look at TensorFlow version one. You know, I mean, like no software engineer in developer in their right mind would have come up with all these variable scopes and name scopes and particularly somebody who deeply understood Python and realized it was like literally recreating things that are already in Python. But it was created by brilliant, genius machine learning engineers, you know, who were like figuring this out as they went. So yeah, there's a lot of room for people who are passionate about developer experience and API design to really rethink, yeah, every stage of the machine learning pipeline. Yeah, agreed. With your background, I think you're in a really interesting position to talk about how you know, you've seen a lot of 
incorporating data, inference, AI, algorithms into kind of business, logistics, project management, these types of things. And these are kind of two worlds which I think could clearly do with a lot of, I mean, a lot of data scientists complain that business leaders don't know enough about data science to ask the right questions. It's a two-way street though, right? I, I think a lot of people in our discipline perhaps don't know enough about supply chains, logistics, project management to have those those conversations. So right. what are the challenges you've seen historically and how can how, how can we fix those? It's much harder for a machine learning expert to become deeply familiar with medicine than it is for a doctor to become familiar with deep learning, you know, and ditto for law or journalism or activism or just about anything you can think of. You know, those domains often take decades to understand and are not set up for lay people to come in and develop enough of an understanding to contribute. You know, if you really want to understand law, it's very hard to do it without a law degree and and some years of, you know, that process of kind of going through clerking and all that other stuff. You know, similar with doctors, you, you do the medical degree and then you become a resident and, you, you know, you it's... It takes a decade. It, it's training and apprenticeship and, you know, a lot of stuff that's not really written down. Mm. And a lot of it's about understanding, well, what are the constraints of like, how does a hospital system work and how do people communicate with nurses and, how you know, what does it look like to do rounds and... You know, or, or at a deeper level of like, well, how does you know how do radiologists actually work with DICOM files? What's the system of how they bring them up, and how does their workflow actually happen? Yeah, all this stuff—it's just a lot of kind of deep, implicit knowledge in the field. So you know, we really encourage domain experts to try and develop some proficiency with deep learning you know, enough that they can train some models and understand deeply the ideas of like machine learning means a flexible functional form has some parameters which allow it to be tuned to solving a particular problem. And after that's done, you end up with this function that you can then run independently and, you know, it can extrapolate, but there are limitations to how much it can extrapolate and you can, you know, understand how well it's doing with these kinds of diagnostics and blah, blah, blah. Like that's not heaps, you know, a few a few months of diligent study from an intelligent person can get you there. I mean, we've, we've seen that many times. And should the focus be on the, the techniques and the ways of thinking more than the code? I think it's both. Without the code, I haven't found people develop enough of an understanding mm. to be useful. Unfortunately, I would love to fix that because code is, you know, a skill that takes a while to acquire. But I mean, to understand code enough to be able to kind of get the gist of it, even if you can't necessarily write it all from scratch yourself, is a lot lower bar. And that's the bar that I think people need to at least get to as domain experts. And then I think it's, yeah, it's really important then to have data scientists become as deeply immersed in the domain as possible. So for example, at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, CHLA, they, I don't know if they still do it, they at least used to have data scientists doing rounds with doctors, with the pediatricians. Amazing. And so they're colleagues with the people who are going to be using the solutions that they're building and they're seeing how the data is captured. And so like, you know, when then when there's some field which is like 
populated in some way, they know it's because the doctor selected from one of those four things on their iPad or that they wrote this thing by scratch and they know actually half the time it was actually written by a nurse because the doctors rarely have time to do it and the nurse sometimes just guesses. And yeah, you know. That story reminds me of when sports broadcasters initially, like, you know, half a century ago or whatever, started having statisticians or actuaries sitting next to them telling them about the statistics of the game so that they could tell the people in real time. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And now that's... So it's breaking down those silos once again. Part of the... That's a standard part now of statistics everywhere. Yeah. Fantastic. We've mentioned several other programming language. I mean, you mentioned Swift and and, and C Sharp. A lot of people work in Python today. Is Python going to grow in in usage for machine learning or do you see diminishing returns at some point? I think the answer is yes to both of those. It'll probably keep growing as more and more people find it. You know, like I think at the moment, the ecosystem for Python is so strong and it's so flexible and Mm -hmm. people are finding ways to really push it you know, further and further, you know, with things like Number or QPy or kind of things which effectively take the the Python code and kind of recompile it in different ways. Or indeed, you know, like Torch Script or TF Function or whatever, you know. It's for that same reason, though, that I think we're going to see, well, we are seeing diminishing returns. Python was not created for that purpose. And indeed, it was created for almost the opposite purpose. It was created to be highly dynamic. And Python is incredibly elegant when you look at like how little infrastructure is actually needed to create all the stuff that's in Python. So, you know, like its meta object protocol, for example, like when you actually dig in and understand what all those Dunder methods do and how they all fit together, there's this incredible elegance about, you know, how OO works in Python. And it's also kind of elegant that you can actually throw it all out and create your own version of it yeah. by leveraging the same meta object protocol. So you know, it's highly dynamic, a lot of reflection. You know, everything can be can be replaced with anything else, and that functionality is used a lot inside the libraries that you're familiar with, even though most of us don't use it ourselves. The problem is that that dynamic functionality is totally at odds with compiling something to run on a GPU or compiling something to run in parallel on a multi-core processor or having careful type checking on top of it or whatever, right? So we end up with crummy versions of all of those things, you know? So for example, if you look at like really elegant type systems that were carefully built for that purpose, you know, whether it be TypeScript or C Sharp or going a lot further, something like Haskell, you know, or indeed Swift, very interesting type system. They're designed from the ground up for that purpose, you know, where else you look at like MyPy, which, you know, brilliant people working on it, but it's trying to like shoehorn something in. You know, it's a very deficient type system compared to those other ones that I'm mentioning in terms of it expresses expressivity and and also how well it matches to actually you know the python code you want to write or indeed you know compilers you know there's you know again comparing to something like swift you know it, swift was explicitly designed by the creator of llvm to leverage the capabilities of the llvm compiler and so it really allows you to to use the compiler in very smart ways on the other hand, Python was never designed for that. And so if something like TorchScript or whatever 
sometimes you see what a hack it is. Like, for example, last time I used it, if you had a comment that was in, I think, any column other than the first, you would get a syntax error. Because it, right. like, you know, like they had to reparse Python from scratch and then do something totally separate with it. If you used the tuple symbol with a small t rather than importing tuple with a big t, which both refer to the same thing, again, it wouldn't work because, like, literally they were doing, you know, string matching. And it was machine learning engineers that were doing the string matching. It was, you know, they weren't compiler writers or, or parser experts. So I compare this to something like Julia. You know, which is developed with a very small, elegant, you know, base written in Scheme, actually, that's designed to be highly expressive and, you know, deep metaprogramming capabilities. But the metaprogramming is very much built with an eye to kind of maintaining the type system and a really interesting and well thought out type system from the ground up. That's a kind of a platform which it just feels like you can build on and build up and up and up. Where else, yeah, Python, it feels like we're just hacking hacks on top of hacks, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Very clever hacks, and it's amazing what people are doing with it. But, you know, that's not really why I'd want to spend my time programming is figuring out how to hack around the deficiencies of the language because you're using it in ways it wasn't designed for. For sure. And I, I think... So something I, th- I, as you know, I think about quite a bit is kind of the fragmentation of, of, of the tooling space. It kind of simultaneously feels like we have not enough tools and, and, and too many tools. And I do think, so for example, in, in the first few lessons of your course, it's incredible how after several hours you get people uh, deploying an, a machine learning model that they've built. And to do so, they're not only using FastAI, Jupyter, Colab or Paperspace, as we, t- as we talked before, but they're also using IPy widgets, Voila, mm-hmm. and Binder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think this is, it's fantastic that you can do this in, in, in several hours, but there is some, there's huge cognitive overhead with all, all of these things, right? I mean, you do it in a way that you can introduce people to just the bits they need, which I think is, is fantastic. But there is, a, there is a huge amount to learn in the space. And do you see some form of consolidation happening here? Something like Voila is so cool, you know, with, with IPy widgets that you can interactively create a GUI and use stuff that you're pretty familiar with. But it, it suffers from this problem that their wrappers, you know, just like PyTorch suffers from the problem that it's wrappers around CUDA code. Voila and IPy widgets suffer from the problem they're wrappers around kind of JavaScript code. And in the end, you know, you end up a less capable front-end developer than somebody who actually understands JavaScript because all you can do is use what's been given to you. It's the same problem in PyTorch. You know, you 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 can't end up doing what Ben Graham did with his sparse CNNs because that requires writing CUDA. And you know, in PyTorch, you just really use what's been given to you. So that yeah, that worries me and it bothers me. I don't think data scientists should have to learn lots of programming languages. Like I just don't think that's feasible, particularly when a lot of people doing data science are not even full-time data scientists. They're you know virologists or microscopists or whatever who happen to be doing some data science. So I am keen to find ways for people to use one language for everything. And another example I think is you make very clear, I think in your last lecture of part one, that um, the machine learning models that I think have the highest impact ensembles of decision trees, so random forests and gradient boosting machines and multi-layered neural networks that learn with stochastic gradient descent. Right. To use these three, you need essentially three different 
package like there's there aren't even two packages that you'd use for for these three right you'd probably use psychic learn for random forests xg boost for boosted and then fast ai or pytorch or whatever it is for yeah but i mean even that though like it's it's so nice to be able to say well here are the three things you need like i feel like it's so different to what you tend to get in academia a lot of gatekeeping of people like well there's 400 different techniques and we're going to teach everyone as if it's totally. a totally new thing. Here's Logit and here's Probit and here's, you know, discriminative analysis and here's, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, Gaussian processes and here's SVMs. And it's like, that's what all the books were like when I was kind of starting out. There was just chapter after chapter after chapter of totally separate things that each one were introduced as a whole new thing. And it is nice to be able to say, look, there are basically three things you need. And I think like you can probably get by with scikit-learn for for all of your tree ensembles nowadays. I mean, you know, they have wrappers and they do have a consistent API. So I do think things are a lot easier than they were, but I still think, you know, it seems like still a lot of courses and books do take people down this path of like a hundred different tools for different things, which I think is a terrible idea. Yeah. And also mentioning, we've mentioned several times, academic research versus implementation. Something you seem to have done wonderfully at at Fast.ai is, Fast.ai with Fast.ai, is taking current state-of-the-art research and figuring out how to port it to very usable models in a very small amount of time that requires users to only write a few lines of the code to develop state-of-the-art stuff. So something I do which seems less common than it should be is anytime I'm interested in a paper, I always write it from scratch myself. Mm. And I don't feel like you can understand a paper really until you've done that. And in the process of rewriting it from scratch, I tend to rewrite it from scratch based off a kind of surface level skimming of the basic ideas rather than a really careful analysis of exactly what the paper says. Because then after that, I'll then go, then go back and compare it to the paper and to their implementation. And often I'll find there's a few like little decisions here and then I'll have done differently that just happen to turn out better, you know, or at least that I realized like, oh, that there is a decision to be made there and maybe different choices are used for different data types or situations. And so, yeah, so as a result of that, it does mean I end up being also able to integrate it better into the rest of the software because I kind of often will realize like, oh, well, actually these three quarters of it are just this type of training loop. So I only actually need to implement a module with this one quarter of it. And oh, actually now I think about it, that's kind of an API for doing X. So I'm just going to make a new API for this and this will be the first thing in that API. And then that'll often make me think like, oh, what else could I do with that API? And so then I'll create Y and Z as well. And then realize like, oh, okay, these are actually a bit better than the original version. So the research and the development have a nice circular kind of relationship. Of course, part of the point is you have to read the research, right? And as you kind of mentioned earlier, when you were starting off thinking about diagnostic imaging, like people clearly hadn't read research that could be relevant across different fields that would perhaps... Yeah, and so I do think people over-specialize. You know, I I definitely like, you know, ULM fit, which was... um, you know, our idea of training a language model and then fine-tuning it for other problems, you know, which has become since that time very popular, entirely came out of the idea of like saying, well, let's just use what works in computer vision in NLP, you know. And I asked lots of people in NLP before I started because I didn't want to waste my time. And I said, like, do you think this is going to work? 
And everybody in NLP said, no, it won't work. And then I said, you know, can you convince me that it won't work? And none of them can convince me that it won't work. It was just this belief that NLP was too difficult. And to be clear, your work on ULM fits set the seed, if I call it, correctly for what are now the GPTs, right? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So um, Alec Radford, who's a genius machine learning engineer and developer, had done a lot of great stuff in NLP, related NLP before, but he told me he had always assumed that you would have to kind of pre-train on on an in-domain data set. So with ULM fit, when, when he saw that we could do that with just Wikipedia, that was what inspired him to create mm. GPT. Amazing. Somewhere I'd like to move now briefly is, I feel like some of the early research techniques and early proofs of principle, is there an argument that they're kind of sucked up into big tech companies and that kind of, on the converse, we all kind of live in the shadow of big tech companies and use a lot of the tools they develop, which may not be quite appropriate for all our reasonable scale ML problems? Yeah, definitely. It's a constant struggle, you know. The big tech companies get all the PR, mm. you know, and um, lots of the particularly young researchers want to be like them, you know, or they want to use the tools that they're using. Or be acquired by them, perhaps, as well. Yeah, you end up with everybody thinking you need a room full of TPUs to solve a problem when you actually you could just do it on an old 1080 Ti graphics card, run it overnight, mm. you know. People think they need terabytes of data without actually realizing that you could do it with just 100 data points. And yeah, and just in general, it's not just an ML thing, but in general, we get startups with a hundred customers using Kubernetes, you know, so yeah. that they have some kind of global failover, <laughs> you know, designed for a billion customers. You know, I think premature optimization is a big problem. And in this case, it's basically premature scaling. It's like premature optimization of like, well, what happens when we hit a billion customers? And does it introduce more complexity into the system as well? Is that part of the challenge? It massively increases the chance that you're going to fail and it makes you yeah. much less able to rapidly iterate. And so that's the number one thing that you have as a startup to make you beat the big guys. And so then if you go and replicate the infrastructure of the big guys, you've now lost your number one benefit. Mm. So yeah, you should be, if you want to beat Google, you should be trying to be as unlike Google as possible. Leverage your, what you can do, which they can't, which is that you can build something, run it on a VPS for $5 a month, you know, make it incredibly simple so that you can rapidly change it, do lots of stuff in entirely manual ways, and then, you know, really figure out fantastic product that everybody loves. I um, I want to move back to thinking about making deep learning as accessible as, as possible. I don't actually know what my question is here, but I'm, I have a sense. So I just want to point in a certain direction. You've done a huge, a huge amount of work in trying to help people understand what's happening with COVID over the past several years. And I'm sure it's a lot of backbreaking work and a lot of frustrating work, particularly when it seems like there's a severe lack of both data literacy and statistical literacy, for sure, and also a lot of other motivations. But I, I just wonder how how you reconcile these these things of trying to increase deep learning accessibility while recognizing that even like people need to understand the base rate fallacy and what a precision maybe is or false negatives and what to actually report sampling statistics. I mean, they're pretty separate things, you know. Like if we've kind of reached this level, I'm hoping where. Using deep learning is as easy as using the internet on your phone. It just becomes part of the the background, you know? Mm. It's like in certain areas, it's already true, right? So you can already leverage 
sophisticated deep learning for computational photography by taking a picture on your phone. And at least on my Pixel 6 Pro, you can like say, oh, there's a you know, power line in the background I don't like, and you can tap on it and it deletes the power line. Mm-hmm. You get it for watching TV on an NVIDIA Shield Android device. You get deep learning-based super resolution by literally clicking a box. Yeah, so they're fairly different things. You know, leveraging deep learning effectively just should not require statistical... I mean, what about it, like understanding class imbalances and that that type? I think once... I mean, for domain experts trying to... Maybe in the, the deployment you're talking about, you're absolutely right. But for radiology and, and that type of stuff, it seems like... I mean, like... that should be... That becomes trivially obvious when you design the workflow, the experience and the visualizations correctly. You know, class imbalance is something which just shouldn't... It shouldn't be a problem just in the same way. So, for example, with fast AI, reporting metrics on your training set is not a problem ever because it's impossible to do with fast AI. And so that's like an example of something that people continually get wrong. And you could say it requires some statistical sophistication. And I say, no, it doesn't. It requires software sophistication that we just, like there's literally no way to create the data for a fast AI model without having a validation set. And there's no way to get the metrics on something that's not the validation set. So same thing with class imbalance. I haven't spent as much time thinking about that as I should, but I'm I'm sure that particularly for a specific domain, like say radiology, there are ways to report the correct metrics in the correct way and visualize them in the correct way so that there just isn't an option to accidentally read it incorrectly. That makes sense. So going back to the challenges with data literacy and statistical literacy, how how can we, I suppose, facilitate people understanding more about these things? I have pretty low expectations, honestly. I don't know if that's fair, but I feel like I've spent 20 plus years trying to do that, particularly when I was in consulting. I spent 10 years trying to do that. And, um, oh, wow, gosh, I'm just trying to think. Sorry, 30 years. I've been trying to do it for 30 years. So it's 30 years ago I really started doing data science. So I find that, you know, people who were not kind of interested, that's you're not going to convince them. And, you know, people are naturally convinced by by narratives, you know, not really by data. And confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah. You know, our brains are what they are. And you can kind of spend your lifetime trying to train your brain to be data-driven and work around all of its foibles, which is something I've tried to do to my brain with some success. But, you know, most people aren't going to do that. So I think instead, yeah, you have to kind of try to present things in ways that it, the correct answer is the intuitively obvious answer and package up stories in ways like I, I think we should be trying to change what we do based on how people's brains are rather than thinking we can change people's brains. And is that something you've attempted in your your work on on masks, for example, masks for everyone? Yes, although I would say that the mass majority of that was done for me you know, mm-hmm. out of the work in the Czech Republic. The very phrase masks are all came out of the Czech Republic and really all of the ideas about how to communicate it. So thanks to my research into communication and influence and so forth, I was able to recognize that all of the key techniques had been used. Mm. <laughs> but I don't think I would have been able to think of how to do them so well myself. But I did have the, the background to be able to say like, oh, we should do exactly what they're doing. So, you know, my mask protects you, your mask protects me, comes in the Czech Republic, you know, masks are all, comes in the Czech Republic. Yeah, 
So it definitely, yeah, it definitely helped, but I would say I'm not, I'm not particularly good at coming up with these things myself, but I'm pretty good at recognizing it when somebody else has nailed it. Cool. So we've chatted a lot about the past and present of deep learning. To wrap up, I'd just like to get a sense of what you'd like to see the future of deep learning bring in any time frame that that you're excited to to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see all of us really leveraging deep learning in our day-to-day jobs in ways that basically dramatically reduce the kind of menial work that we do, make make us all more productive without requiring us or any, you know, almost any of us to understand gradients or activation functions or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I would really love to see deep learning being used in much more thoughtful ways around things like making labeling exponentially more effective by kind of, you know, having much better interplay between humans and algorithms. Yeah, I really hope that as more domain experts become proficient deep learning practitioners, that we'll really see deep learning embedded into domains in ways that really improve people's productivity in ways that hopefully might reduce, you know, the massive resource shortages we have. So for example, in medicine, I really believe that medical practitioners could be 10 times more productive by leveraging deep learning. That is basically the shortage we have of medical experts in the developing world. So if we could do that, then we could resolve the shortage of medical experts in the developing world. Stuff like that would be great, would be great outcomes. And is do you envisage a no-code future or low-code future? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there's always going to be needing code to, you know, just like we still need people writing code that works with subnet masks and IP addresses and whatever else. Yeah, I really mean for like some Pareto law of, you know, most people doing deep learning. Yeah, most people doing deep learning, just like most people using the internet, don't have to create a PPP configuration file or whatever. Most people using deep learning. I mean, in some ways you can see this is already true. I mean, most people using deep learning are using it accidentally through their phone's computational photography or their photo album's ability to find all the pictures of your daughter or whatever. And even, yeah, people, hopefully these things will become more and more flexible. And so there needs to be a lot of work done on what are the kind of optimal UI ways of interacting with a deep learning model. Those don't really exist yet at the moment. Not many people are working on that. To me, that's the areas which are the most exciting. You built something called Platform AI, which played around with that for some time, is that right? I didn't build that. So I built with one of our engineers at Analytic, I built a kind of a, it was actually for for my talk on TED.com, I built a, a absolutely a version of that for a particular domain, which is image classification. And yeah, it's like, it's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's It's something where a domain expert can label hundreds of thousands of images in 10 minutes by interacting with a model. And then Platform AI, yeah, was was built to commercialize that idea. We'll include a link to that TED Talk in, in the show notes. I actually, that that's a nice, a, a nice way to wrap up because I do recall, I haven't watched it in some time, but something you mentioned there, which I think about probably a, a bit too often, is that the machine learning and deep learning revolution is qualitatively different from the previous revolutions, such as the Industrial Revolution, in terms of this idea of exponential technology. So maybe we could wrap up by you telling us a bit about that and what that means for us as as a labor force and approaches we can have to reconfiguring society to kind of have have it nourish and raise up as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, particularly something I didn't talk about in that TED talk. There's an interplay between the huge rise of corporations and 
this huge increase in productivity from deep learning mm. and also this kind of natural monopolization that occurs, you know, with companies owning the data and the resources, being able to pr- kind of provide better products and services as a result. Yeah, I, I definitely worry about that kind of dystopian outcome where all the resources en- end up in the hands of, you know, a tiny handful of people, even more than we have now. And again, this is something where I feel like making the technology more accessible hopefully means that more people can kind of play in this area and maybe we can avoid dystopia of like a huge amount of income inequality and centralization of power. But I would say I'm not particularly confident about that. <laughs> and there are very serious, I mean, Mary Gray has a beautiful book called Ghost Work, which delves into the outsourcing of labor in in, in the gig economy. Um, so I think people becoming very, vastly more familiar with this this type of stuff. So yeah, the incredible. other great book is um, Manor by Marshall Brain, which is freely available. I don't know Manor. I'll check it out and put it in the show notes. He basically predicted, I think it's like 2002, he basically predicted everything that's happened to date and particularly involving kind of like how Amazon works. He predicted mm-hmm. that and I could imagine it continuing to go in the direction he think thought it might, which is basically, you know, machines timing everything that most of us do. And if you take more than three seconds, more than you're meant to, more than three times, the machine automatically fires you. And it's really a pathological end game of like Fortis production line, Taylorism stuff, right. right? And which is, you know, already what we have at Amazon. Yeah. That's how a lot of the jobs already already work. Mm. That's why you have people peeing in bottles. Yeah. Not because somebody told them to pee in bottles, but because the algorithm has, you know, figured out what, how long each job can take and everybody has to take that amount of time to do each job. There's also, I've, I've discovered a term recently, ludic capitalism, which is the gamification of fi- financial markets. And I know that um, Uber drivers, for, for example, they receive bonuses for going to a particular region at a particular point in time and it unlocks new features for them and, and, and that type of stuff. The fact that this is obscured behind veils of their versions of the APIs, which we don't necessarily have have access to, is really important to recognize. I hate the way we're all increasingly becoming, um, yeah, pawns to these giant corporate machines. Yeah. There's actually a wonderful book on, on this note by someone called Alex Rosenblatt. It's a book called Uberland, and it's it's a, kind of a tech sociological study of the current labor force in Uber and such such companies. And she's done a lot of on-the-ground research with Uber drivers. I don't know that one. The final thing is you mentioned in your TED Talk, one of your final slides, and I've actually just brought it up here, is that with these types of concerns, you say what doesn't necessarily help is better education and more incentives to work. But what does help is to separate labor from earnings and the idea of craft-based economies. Yeah, so a lot of people say that they'll, you know, if we, as we kind of have less and less need for human inputs. And so human labor becomes lower and lower value, which we're already seeing, obviously. We're seeing a lot of people working for not enough wages. So it's obviously going to get worse and worse. And so people often say, oh, we'll just, we should invest in education. But yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't actually help with the underlying problem at all because you now have more people building the things that increase inequality and decrease the need for human inputs. So for an individual, like if it was my child, for example, I would say, oh yes, definitely focus on education because for an individual, it helps you avoid obsolescence for longer, but it doesn't help society avoid the problem. So yeah, currently we 
have our economy structured on the assumption that human labor is a scarce resource and that it's therefore something that we should associate with with money to the level where in many jurisdictions if you don't have a job you can barely live or sometimes you can't live at all that seems like a fundamentally incorrect premise and so we could use something like um, negative taxation rates to allow people who are not currently making enough money to have enough money to live and when you have Yes, Australia is generally pretty good at this. We have like far fewer people in desperate need in Australia. And as a result, we have a an environment that I enjoy being in a lot more than most environments in America. You don't need kind of as much like gated communities or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you lived in San Francisco in a time where that type of inequality increased tr- tremendously as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's nice to live in a in a society without without desperation. And so certainly, um, and where things aren't getting worse and worse. So like negative income tax helps a lot with that. So the people who are making the least money don't just pay no income tax, they actually receive extra. And then, yeah, over time, as inequality increases more and more, you know, that negative income tax can actually turn into UBI, you know, into into a basic income everyone receives. Although at the moment, I'm surprised in some ways that people are so focused on UBI rather than negative income tax, because negative income tax is like a very scalable thing. It's a parameterized thing that you can gradually change. Yeah, whereas UBI is this kind of like, I don't know, it's it's a it's a much less kind of elegant tool. <laughs> you know, it's much more of a like where you're going to throw this huge bunch of money at people. Doesn't feel like quite the right approach at the moment. I do think maybe part of it, and I, I haven't really thought about this deeply at all, but is, is due to our... We, our focus on universality and what equality means and that type of stuff. I don't know. I mean, we have progressive taxation. So negative income tax just means making it more progressive. Absolutely. But nobody seems to be trying that. I don't know why not. Maybe I'm missing something. Jeremy, is always fun to talk with you. And thank you for for spending this time and giving us so much insight into your work and, and your thoughts. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You can follow us on Twitter at Vanishing Gradients Pod or check out our website, vanishinggradients.com. Look forward to having you join us in the next episode.